This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we'll be talking with David Costin about what's ahead for U.S. equities in 2020. But before that, we're going to get a quick markets update from Tony Pasquarello of the Goldman Sachs Securities Division. Tony's watching five key numbers in markets right now. Over to you, Tony. Hey, Jake. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. Uh, my name is Tony Pascarello. I'm the global head of hedge fund coverage for the securities division at Goldman Sachs. And the big number I'm looking at right now is 31%. That was the total return of the S&P 500 in 2019, which was the best year since 2013, and a 93rd percentile outcome on a longer-term historical basis. Now, against the expectations of most people coming out of a very rocky end to 2018, Last year wound up being a truly superb year for the stock market, as well as most every other major asset class. Witnessed very strong returns in emerging markets, the credit markets, as well as select commodities like oil and gold. So in the end, 2019 played out as one of the highest quality years in the history of financial markets, and U.S. equities were once again one of the very best horses in the race. By the way, in the last eight years, where S&P was up 20% or more, the market was higher in the subsequent year in all eight occurrences for a median return of 17%. So a number that's getting attention right now, but doesn't necessarily tell us what we need to know is the PE multiple on the S&P 500. So that number started last year at 14.4 and ended last year at 18.8. For historical context, 18.8 is in the 90th percentile of the past 43 years. So that number is rightly getting attention, and I think you have to be respectful of the history book and what current levels suggest about future returns. That said, I don't think it tells us everything we need to know because when you look at the bond market and the very low level of yield that's available today on a global basis, I think it changes the implication. So another number that we follow is the spread between the earnings yield of S&P 500 and 10-year note yields, also known as the equity risk premium. That current spread is around 500 basis points compared to a historical spread of 370 basis points, suggesting that stocks remain attractive when compared to bonds. Now I'm gonna move on to my third number. Again, sticking with the relationship between stocks and bonds for a moment, a number that has not moved a lot, but in doing so has actually caught my eye, is the 1.56% yield on the two-year note. My observation here is that a lot of things are going right for risk assets right now. The global economy is expected to pick up speed in 2020. The binary event risk around the UK election and the US-China trade war has broken in a favorable direction. And again, risk assets have a lot of positive momentum now. Despite all of that, the front end of the US interest rate curve isn't moving. That 156 two-year note yield I mentioned has barely budged in the past two months, which I think is a function of the Fed telling us that they're committed to keeping the funds rate anchored at a very low level. In real terms, the funds rate is actually negative right now, and I think that's on net a bullish underpinning for risk assets in the year ahead. Number four, the number that I'm thinking about for the future is 1.445 trillion. That's the wedge between how much money has flowed into fixed income funds and into money market funds versus how much has flowed out of equity funds in 2019. Below the surface, last year saw $572 billion flow into money markets. That was a record. Another $644 billion flow into fixed income funds. That's also a record. 
Against that, $229 billion flowed out of equities. That was a near record, eclipsed only by the battle days of 2008. Again, despite the fact that U.S. stocks sit at all-time highs as we speak, and despite the fact that bond yields are significantly lower today than they were in late 2018, last year saw a very clear trend of money moving out of stocks and into the bond market. Oh, we're spending a lot of time thinking about whether 2020 sees some reversion of that money flow to the benefit of equity funds. Finally, a number that I'm thinking about outside the office is 781 or 0.781. That was the winning percentage of my beloved New England Patriots during the decade that just ended, which was the best of any major professional sports franchise in the U.S. After 781, the next best on the list was the San Antonio Spurs at 698, the Pittsburgh Penguins at 646, and the Golden State Warriors at 645. Thanks, Tony. Now on to the next segment of the episode with David Costin, the firm's chief U.S. equity strategist, who's here to talk through his team's 2020 stock market forecasts. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. So let's get right to it and put some numbers on stock market projections for uh, 2020. What is your estimate for the S&P 500 by year-end 2020? 3,400. What would that represent? That would represent about a 6% return from the current level of about 3,200. Okay. And how much will the U.S. economy GDP grow in 2020? On average, the U.S. economy will grow at about 2.3% for 2020. And that is pretty much in line with the average annual growth for the last 10 years. All right. So uh, the average S&P profit margin next year? About 10.8%, which is uh, up just slightly from the current level. Okay. And will U.S. equities enter a bear market in the coming year? Do not expect that you will have a 20% decline. I expect the market will rise modestly at the beginning of the year to around 3,250 and then uh, bounce around uh, for a good part of the year until the election. And uh, expectation is it'll rise towards 3,400. And that's a target at the end of 2020. Okay. Now give some context to those numbers. Um, what, what's driving your estimates? So the key driver of the estimates is the economy's growing at around 2.3%, and most companies over time grow their revenues in line with nominal GDP. So if real GDP, we're expecting a little over 2%, inflation a little less than 2%, so broadly speaking, nominal GDP about 4%, most companies will grow their revenues at 4%. Margins are going to be, as I indicated, basically flat, maybe slightly higher. That means your sales of Nominal GDP equals sales. Your sales equal pretty much your earnings. Your earnings will grow 4%. And then there's about 100 basis points or one percentage point increase from share share purchases. That gives you 5%. So the bottom line is you go around 2% real GDP growth. That's what drives 5% EPS growth, earnings per share growth. And that's broadly speaking the trajectory of the market from this level going forward. It's just math. Just math. So uh, David, your team's 2020 U.S. equity outlook is entitled United We Fall, Divided we rise. Explain title and what it means to you. Okay, so the goal of forecasting at the end of 2020, it's really quite challenging because we have a big event, the U.S. elections, that will take place in early November of 2020. So choosing or finding or identifying a level of the stock market at the end of 2020 will require, does require, making certain assumptions about the election outcome. That's just math, as you uh, just mentioned earlier. And so the current baseline assumption that we are using 
is that the divided government that we currently have, which is to say the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the President, the White House, is controlled by different parties in different forms. That is the baseline assumption we have. And your earnings will grow 5%. Your valuation in the market, which is currently around 18.5 times forward PE multiple, will stay around where it is today. And that leads to a 3,400 target. That is my forecast. And that is a divided government, which currently exists, persists in some form in 2020 after the election. And that's the forward. The reason I emphasize this so much is that really identifying a forecast for the end of 2020 involves making assumptions on earnings for 2021. The alternative assumption is that you have a unified government and one of the key assumptions involves the tax rate for US corporations. The tax rates under the tax cut that took place at the end of 2017 reduced the tax rate, effective tax rate that companies pay from 27% to 19%. And if you assume for a moment that that reverses and that tax cut is repealed, then the earnings growth that we're currently expecting looking into 2021 of 5% would end up being a decline of around 7%. And that rising uncertainty about the policy in 2021 would also lead to a lower multiple. And so a scenario where you have a rollback of the tax cut, greater uncertainty would lead to the S&P 500 trading towards 2,600, in my opinion. That would be under a unified democratic government, presumably. That would be the assumption that we yeah. are currently making because all of the leading candidates for the Democrats currently are proposing to roll back the tax cuts in part to pay for various priorities. So I want to be very clear that I'm not making a value judgment of whether those are good or bad policies, right. but rather the analytical assumption of where earnings will be. And the idea of earnings in 2021, baseline forecast is they'll rise in line with the economy, kind of the arithmetic and we discussed just a minute ago, right. and different scenarios if you roll back that tax cut, that has significant impacts on earnings. Another way of thinking about this is a certain amount of profits that are currently inuring to an investor would no longer be inuring to the equity investor, would be inuring to the government in ways of reallocating some of that spending. Right. So let's talk a little bit about monetary policy. Um, at this point, most people expect the, the Fed to stay pretty easy um, and steady next year at least in the United States. What does that mean for stocks in the year ahead? So interest rate assumptions are important variable in terms of valuation of equities. Equities themselves in the United States are trading at pretty expensive levels relative to history. Somewhere between the 90th and the 95th percentile on every metric going back 40 years. So they're mm -hmm. high on that level. The one metric that equities are actually quite attractive is valued relative to interest rates, which have remained low for, for quite some time. And so the baseline assumption that we are using in part of the US economics team is that Federal Reserve will be on hold for really the next year and a half, until sometime in the latter part of 2021. So that stable policy rate is also consistent with pretty low long-term treasury yields, which are gonna rise in our forecast slightly to around two and a quarter percent at the end of 2021. 20. And that environment is still positive for equity prices. And that's partly the assumptions we're making in our assumption that's a forecast for Because the relative rate of return is, is high. Still pretty high. To, for, to, for to a low interest rate. So you work very closely with Jan Hatzius and, and his macroeconomics team. What's the outlook for fiscal policy in an election year um, as a lever to stimulate growth? Do we expect any action at all on fiscal policy? And could that have an impact on markets? 
Uh, well, as you indicated, the U.S. economics team is currently expecting the government will run at about a trillion dollar deficit uh, next year. So certainly they're spending a lot. There's not as much flexibility in terms of new spending initiatives. And with a divided government currently in Washington, it's probably unlikely to get uh, significant new spending in either infrastructure or other types of uh, investments. So the broad assumption we're making is that the U.S. consumer, I think it's a critical assumption, the U.S. consumer, which is about 70% of the U.S. economy, U.S. consumers in a very strong position. There's both low unemployment rate, lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. Wages are rising at around 3.5%. Inflation is less than 2, so you get real wage inflation. Balance sheets of the consumer have been delevered for 10 years, so the balance sheets of the consumer are strong. Consumer confidence is pretty high. And so all those assumptions give a view that the consumer is likely to continue to expand and grow, and that's a key driver of uh, the economy and, and, and corporate earnings. Unfortunately, CEO confidence is extremely low, one of the lowest it's been in 10 years. And that is primarily driven by uncertainty around a trade, uncertainty around uh, political policies, et cetera. And so the expectation that we have is that the consumer is really the more important driver at this time. And at some point, the CEO confidence will improve. And certainly as the resolution of some of the uncertainty in politics takes place, that uh, suggests the economic expansion will continue for at least another couple of years. So let, let's talk a little bit more about that uncertainty um, next year. I mean, starting with U.S.-China trade dynamics, we've seen a partial agreement, uh, phase one so far. H how does that fit into your base case? So 70% of the revenues of U.S. corporations are actually generated domestically. And so that is really a, a key driver of overall earnings. The trade variable is certainly something that uh, has waxed and waned, if reasonably mercurial, a president in Washington and a lot of uh, uncertainty in terms of that forecasting process. So we're assuming that uh, you get some modest rollback of the tariffs, uh, pretty much what you've seen so far. We're not really expecting any more new tariffs to be levied. And maybe there's some uh, increased resolution of some variables, but we're certainly not anticipating a broad uh, resolution in terms of the overall comprehensive trade. And we can trade that, and we actually follow that in the equity market. Uh, we can see what the stocks are implying with respect to trade. We can look at the uh, performance of U.S. stocks that sell to China, companies that uh, U.S. stocks sell domestically, and compare that with Chinese stocks that sell to the United States and Chinese stocks sell domestically, and look at that relationships and indicate that right now the equity market is pricing in something above a 70% likelihood of a trade resolution, and that's basically our, 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 our forecast that we're assuming. Okay, so... We, we talked about the election, but let's let's go back on one level. How do investors think about the the election and its expected impact on markets, particularly because, as you said, you're going to have a period in the beginning of the year where you're just looking at the, the primaries and the Democratic nominee, and then the latter half of the year, everyone's going to be waiting for November. So the idea of the fundamentals are really critical in terms of discussions with clients. Each portfolio manager with whom I uh, speak and interact has different assumptions, both their own political biases as well as their own forecast of what's likely to take place based on polling data, et cetera. And so really the fundamentals come down to what is the likely path of profits and you know, how are we going to value those profits? What's the probability of that uh, the forecast? And so we see as some of the more progressive candidates, the probability was increasing sharply earlier in the fall. You saw the uh, managed healthcare stocks, as an example, uh, declined quite sharply as all the discussion ramped up about 
uh, Medicare for all and things like that. And that was stocks were viewed at risk under those policies. As the probabilities of progressive candidates have declined, those stocks have actually rallied quite, uh, quite, quite significantly. And so the idea that you pointed out of the waxing and waning of the political fortunes of different candidates has certain implications for some sectors than others. And so the discussions tend to uh, evolve at the sector level as opposed to the broad market level. And the broad market level is likely to stay, as I indicated, something in the vicinity of 3250, kind of around those levels, which would be consistent with the forecast we have on profits. But individual sectors, lots of discussion now around technology. There's pretty much bipartisan view, both Democrats and Republicans. There should be some legislation involving privacy and involving some of the technology companies. So that's a discussion that portfolio managers have, antitrust questions uh, about different industries. And that is, I'd say, where more of the discussions take place at a more granular level as opposed to the broad market. Yeah, really hard to predict what that will look like. Uh, are there any other key risks for the U.S. Um, stocks in 2020 that we haven't discussed beyond trade and in the politics? So the most surprising development in the equity market in the last six months to me was the reversal in buybacks. And so corporate share repurchases have been a vital driver of money flow into the market. So if you look at the different components of who owns the shock price, who owns uh, equities, you have households directly, you have mutual funds, people owning it indirectly, you have international investors, pension funds, for example. Those four categories comprise about 85% of the ownership of the U.S. stock market. And so if we look at the flows around who's buying, who's selling in these different categories, overwhelming demand actually comes from corporate share repurchases. And for a long time, that has been a key source of the demand. And that jumped dramatically following the tax cuts that we talked about earlier. Ta tax rates came down for corporations. Unexpected they, boom in cash. They, yeah. took, uh, they took this extra profits and a big chunk of that was used to buy back stock. Of course, some of it was also used to invest for growth and do other things. But that jump in buybacks I expected after 2018 would increase modestly in, uh, in 2019. In fact, it increased at the first quarter. And then surprised me, it dropped by 18% in the second quarter. And so that reversal of the amount of marginal dollars directed towards buybacks is a surprise. I think that's a risk or a, a question about 2020. We are expecting around 5% decline, our forecast for 2020, to 5% decline year over year in cash spent on, uh, on corporate repurchasing shares. That's about a little under $700 billion will be spent. So still a significant amount of money, but it's down around 5%. Okay. It's the biggest potential upside event that could positively impact the stock market next year. So a resolution on trade would be a positive development because that's a, a source of some uncertainty. It's an uncertainty in the form of higher input costs for corporations. Therefore, it has a potential risk for lower margins for some companies, some industries. So a resolution on that front would, in fact, be a positive. I could say, in, indicated earlier, we're not really expecting much solution in that area, pretty much kind of where we are now. But uh, that would be, I think, a, a positive development uh, for, uh, for the markets. So look back at 2019, David. Give us the one-minute description of what happened in the equity markets this year. I think the most important to understand why we've had almost a 30% return in U.S. stocks in 2019 is the fact that the stock market fell by 20%, almost 20% in the fourth quarter of 2018. So we actually had a particularly low starting point from a timing perspective that was, that was important. And 90% of the return to the stock market this year, 2019, came from valuation expansion 
as opposed to earnings growth. Well, there was not very much earnings growth uh, for 2019. And so as we look into next year, the story is more earnings-driven as opposed to valuation-driven. So the earnings are the key driver for next year. And, and to what do you attribute that expansion in valuation this year? Well, the idea of starting point at a, at a particularly low level first, and second is the, the pivot in the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve at this time last year was anticipated to be hiking interest rates about four times in 2019. And as a result of that pivot, in fact, the Federal Reserve ended up cutting interest rates by three, you know, three different times. And that was a, uh, that supported the expansion in valuation, the relationship between interest rates and, uh, and, and, and stocks. And so that's, I think, the story of uh, 2019 in, in a nutshell. Okay, so a professional or personal highlight uh, from 2019 and something you're looking forward to in 2020? So the per personal highlight for, for, for 2019 is I went to see, uh, on two different occasions, to see oral arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I thought it was extremely interesting. It's a very intimate setting, and to watch the advocates uh, and the counsels on both sides and all the questions, there's a 30-minute argument. Uh, each side is, uh, is allotted, and in that 30-minute argument, there are 60 questions from the justices. And so watching that uh, back and forth was, uh, was extremely fascinating to me. Very cool. I've, I've lived in Washington more than 10 years. I've never been, so uh, you beat me there. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, that concludes this episode of Exchange with Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. Thank you. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.